So uh, before the service, I was talking with some of the children, and uh, I asked them, so are you really excited about getting back home and getting your pajamas on? And they said, yeah. I said, me too. I have my pajama pants laying out like it's ready for me to get back into that. I, I love, I just love staying in my pajamas all day long at Christmas time. I love it. And you know, actually, I say that and I use the word love on purpose because in our English language, uh, love just has a broad swath of potential meanings to it, from extremely surfacy to just, I enjoy this thing, uh, to greater depth that it can mean when you say to someone, I love you with all my heart. Maybe some of you, many of you, you're familiar with uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, you have all these different stories of the Old Testament. And the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, I don't know if it's in every single story or most or many of the stories, in, in trying to show how the scriptures point forward to Jesus, the author tries to define the a certain Hebrew word for love. In Hebrew, there's multiple words that can be translated love. Same thing with Greek for the New Testament. But there's one word in the Hebrew, hased, which is most often reserved for God and has specific depth and breadth of meaning to it. And the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible will describe that love as this, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And, and, and the author wants to emphasize it that way because if you were to go to a Hebrew dictionary, you'll find a way to translate this word can be desire, zeal, love, kindness, benevolence. But, but there's a sense to that word, which is an unfailing kind of love kindness or goodness, often used of God's love that is related to faithfulness to his covenant. So it, it, is, it is an unfailing love that is related to his faithfulness to his covenant. God gives covenant, God gives a promise because he loves, and because he loves, he keeps the covenant, right? It's, it's going back to the Jesus storybook, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Now, embedded in this idea of God's love is also ideas of delight and commitment. Delight and commitment. I, I say that because we could think about God's love and think of it in terms of something maybe he... How do I word it? Something he has to do, you know? Like sometimes when you feel like you have to do something because it's just the right thing to do, ugh, but I'll do it because I'm supposed to. That's not how God operates. God delights in. God is committed to loving humanity and showing his love and shining forth his love to humanity. He does this with delight. 
He wants to do this. So if we have that kind of understanding, at least a little bit of understanding of love, then I want to give you this main idea for the sermon today, which is that God's love sustained his people and pointed forward to love in the flesh, who grants people God's love to be shared with the world for all eternity future. So that's a really big, long main idea uh, for this morning. But God's love sustained his people. What I'm talking about here is that in the Old Testament scriptures, God's love sustained the people. That because God loved and because God, God cared for his people in the Old Testament time period, he sustained them. And in that sustaining was pointing forward to love coming in the flesh. Was pointing towards Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. And that love of God sustained the people. Because if God did not love, we would be destroyed, right? We would be because we're rebels. Humanity has rebelled against God. A few years ago, and now I'm going to just focus on the first part of the main idea. A few years ago, I, when I was reading in Genesis, I was struck in new ways at the beauty of the creation narrative. Like, reading and thinking about how awe-inspiring the creation must have been, how beautiful the Garden of Eden must have been. There was no sin, no brokenness, just unrestrained, perfect growth and multiplication of all that was made, beautiful stones, amazing metals, life-sustaining rivers, perfect food. Adam and Eve were in glorious innocence, no victimization, no power plays over each other, no sin. I mean, we really literally can only imagine what that would be like, right? Because we live in a world where there are major wars that are taking place right now. We live in a world where we hear over and over again about families being torn apart, people in immense pain, where even just friends or family who are hospitalized and suffering. But there was a time where none of that existed. And as I read that creation narrative, I, I longed to know what that must have been like. And I still wonder. As I thought through God's creative work, I saw God's grace. I saw God's love. And, and think to myself, behold, what manner of love that God would create all this and call Adam and Eve to enjoy this creation and call Adam and Eve to image him forth as rulers under his rule. Now, we don't know how long it took for Eve and Adam to rebel against the Lord, but they did. Eve longed for the fruit of the forbidden tree because she thought it was going to give her what she needed. And that's the essence, really, of all temptations. We're tempted because we think that God is keeping something from us that we think we need. We think we can't live without that thing. And so instead of trusting God's goodness, instead of trusting God's love, we trust ourselves. And Adam and Eve, they trusted themselves, and immediately 
Immediately upon sinning, fear entered in. And they start sowing fig leaves to try to cover things up. And they're hiding from God. And it reminds me of 1 John 4. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Adam and Eve experienced the perfection of love. But now, the awareness of and the communion with perfect love has been lost. Why? Why has it been lost? Because they rejected perfect love. They rejected God. Therefore, they experienced fear and they're facing punishment. Yet, as I think all of us or most of us in this room know, in the midst of the punishment, God was promising hope. The foundation for them to be able to stand on, that there's going to be a seed of the woman who is going to crush the serpent and destroy death and destroy sin. Now, let me ask you a question. This is going to be an obvious question. I'm already going to give you the answer. Why would God promise a rescuer for humanity? Because God set his love on human beings. Now, why am I... Why am I emphasizing this question? Because I think that maybe, maybe many of us, maybe all of us in this society, uh, we, we presume on the divine being loving. Like, we j- I'm, not, I'm not saying it's wrong to think that God loves but we, we presume upon it. Like, well, of course he loves us. No, no, not of course. This is amazing. Why would God promise a rescuer for humanity? Because he set his love on human beings. Now think about this. As far as uh, what, what we know is that at some point in time before this, somebody else rebelled. Do you know who that was? Satan and a whole host of angels. And did God promise a crusher for them? No. He didn't. He doesn't have to. And yet, he set his love on human beings. And thus, he promised a serpent crusher. This promise is a promise of hope. Now, I want to sidestep for a moment, and I want to ask you to think about this whole series of Advent as we contemplate Jesus coming to this earth. We've looked at hope, we've looked at peace, we've looked at joy, and today we ponder love. We've seen that God is the God of all hope, steadfast assurance, whatever he says will be. We see that God is the God of all peace, and in his presence is fullness of joy. All of these are wonderful attributes and gifts of God. And the only reason why God would offer for human beings to partake of these gifts is because he is a God of love. So I think it's And I know it's true what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest of these is love. Now let's get back to Adam and Eve. 
Now, just because Adam and Eve were given hope and God showed love doesn't mean that everything was better, right? Because after that, many people trampled on God's kindnesses and God's love towards them. You move on even just to the next generation, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. He didn't like God's judgment of him. And so he murders and lacks love. You move on, you get to somebody like Lamech who then um, takes pride in how much revenge he can take on other people. And you eventually get to Noah in his day and we hear from the scriptures an evaluation of the earth where it says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And there's a reason why I read that whole portion. It doesn't have the word love in it, but the idea of love is actually in it. You might be tempted to only think the idea of judgment is in this. But this Hebrew word for sorry, when he says, I am sorry that I have made them, the Hebrew word for sorry holds within it the idea of consoling oneself and having empathy. God saw the wickedness of humanity and he was sorrowful over human beings and what they had chosen to do. It caused grief to his heart because they have rejected the one who is life. They have rejected love and they have only chosen to sin and thus they're pursuing death and so God affirms their pursuit but even in the midst of that affirmation of their pursuit, and while he judges the earth and sends the flood and many people die, God still rescues a remnant, Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives. Why? Because God made a promise. And covenant-keeping love means he's going to keep the covenant he made to Adam and Eve. A serpent crusher is going to come. So you go on and read in Genesis, and there's this, there's this reality where you see the sinfulness of people, but you also see God's faithfulness. It's like what James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. God continues to show and exercise mercy. You enter into the book of Exodus, and many of us are familiar with this passage from a sermon series a couple of years ago, but when Moses asks to see God's glory, how does God define his glory? The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's glory is revealed in steadfast love, and judgment. It's not steadfast love or judgment. It's steadfast love and judgment, but it's also revealed in this steadfast love, this mercy triumphing through judgment. That's, that's how God reveals his glory, that we would see his steadfast love continues and remains and will hold his people together because God made a promise 
And that promise is the serpent crusher is going to come through this people. And his mercy, his steadfast love will triumph over all the judgment that's going to happen. And so we continue to read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, on and on and on. And then we get to the Psalms, which is the songbook for Israel. And I actually think there's one psalm in particular that highlights the reality that God's steadfast love carried the people. God's steadfast love sustained the people and pointed forward to love in the flesh. In the book of Psalms, the word said for steadfast love shows up a hundred times. You think God wants his people to know that he is a God of love? Yeah. And then there's one psalm in particular where this word shows up 26 times in one psalm. If you're a person who doesn't quite like repetition in songs, you might not like that psalm. But I hope you love it because we need to hear it. We need to pray that this reality sinks into our souls. It's Psalm 136. And starts off, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Can you say this next line with me? For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. Now the psalm begins simply by declaring God's character. Notice the word for. The word for can also mean because. Right? So in this, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Let's go back so you can see it. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good, right? Because he is good. Because, why is he good? Because his steadfast love endures forever. I know he's good because his steadfast love endures forever. And because his steadfast love endures forever, he's always good. You get that? And that's how the psalm begins. We can be assured so we can give thanks. Give thanks to the God who is over all the idols and who is over all the rulers of the earth because unlike rulers who can die and idols who can do nothing, God actually loves. And his love is steadfast. The psalm then goes on. To him who alone does great things. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. We begin with God's power in creation. No one else has created. God is the uncreated creator. And his creation is not simply to reveal how demanding he is. We rejoice because with all of his power, he is a God of steadfast love that endures forever. With all that power, he is a God of steadfast love. And so then, so then the psalm continues to speak and moves beyond creation to the people of Israel in particular. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalm continues to speak of God rescuing Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea. Then the psalm moves beyond the wilderness wanderings and then into Israel, entering into the promised land, and then says, to him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. What we see in this psalm is that God's steadfast love is foundational to all he does for his people, for the people he has chosen to save. God's love sustains and empowers them. And this psalm ends by reminding us that God's steadfast love continues. I mean, that would make sense, right? Steadfast love endures forever means it's going to keep going on, right? But Have you ever doubted God's love? Have you? But it's a steadfast love that endures forever. So we need that reminder again and again. His love continues to go on. And this this psalm, psalm here, is to emphasize to the people of Israel in all time periods and whatever they're going through, that God's love rests on his people. Whether you are under King David at that time, and he's writing that, and King David was, for the most part, a wonderful king, right? Or you're experiencing the divided kingdom a couple of generations down, or you're experiencing the Babylonian captivity, or you've returned and the temple isn't like what it was before, or you're experiencing the 400 years of silence, this psalm is still true right? Through joys or pains, say it with me, his steadfast love endures forever. And so as you come to the end of the psalm, it is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Savor this, Ventura. He remembered Israel's low estate. He rescued them from their enemies. He fed them and feeds all people around the globe. So the psalmist says, give thanks to the God of heaven. And again, the implication is this continues on to this day. God's steadfast love, God's steadfast love sustains his people. And in the midst of every scenario, God was pointing forward to the Messiah who's coming and will fulfill his steadfast love. Love is coming in the flesh. And 2,000 years ago, love did come in the flesh. All the anticipation of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in that day in relative darkness and, in, and obscurity, Jesus entered the world. And when Jesus entered the world, it's no wonder that the angels could hardly contain themselves and rejoice with great joy 
with the shepherds. Remember again, I mean, the angels were not offered redemption, but they can look at the the redemption of human beings and they can rejoice that God has chosen to save human beings. And so they do rejoice. Glory to God. Why are they rejoicing that God has come in the flesh? Because God has shown his love. John 3.16, for God so loved, or God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. joy to the world, love has come. God showed the steadfast love that endures forever most clearly in sending Jesus. That's how God showed his love. And of course, John goes on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John goes on and says, the world is already condemned. We're all born in brokenness and sin. Jesus didn't come to condemn. We already are. Jesus came as the light of the world into the darkness so that the darkness might see they're dark and they need light. And Jesus came as the light because he loves so that they might see their need for a savior, a need for rescuing and that they might be saved, they might be reconciled to God. And so we see in the scriptures that anyone who would believe on Jesus, meaning anyone who would no longer trust themselves and their ways, but trust Jesus, will be reconciled to God. And that's actually something really important, I think, especially in our culture and day, when I just said that we don't trust ourselves in our ways, we trust Jesus. And the reason why I say that is because I think we live, especially in our culture and society, one prominent definition of love is to affirm people in whatever they feel. Maybe not in whatever, but in many things. You don't love me if you don't affirm what I affirm. I mean, I think we've heard that. We've experienced that in different relationships with people. Is that love? That's not love. Jesus didn't come to affirm everyone, right? No. The world is already condemned, so what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to save them from condemnation. And so Jesus enters into this world as the light, and he shows the glory of God, what we talked about earlier in Exodus 34, or as the Apostle John says in more shortened form, we beheld the glory of God, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus spoke truth and grace. That's love. Listen, listen. If you only speak words of affirmation, you're not loving others. Do you hear that? I would also say if you're only, if you're only speaking words of truth with no, 
with no tone of compassion, you're not communicating God either. But Jesus came and entered into this world and showed love. Love is grace and truth, even at the expense of your own self. And Jesus spoke grace and truth at the expense of himself, right? Because Jesus so loved, he was willing to be put down. He was willing to be mocked. He was willing to be crucified. Not only willing, but that was his mission. Because even though human being says, we want to get rid of this guy, the plan of God was that through that death on the cross, Jesus would not just endure the anger of human beings, but Jesus would take the punishment that those angry human beings deserved in their place. And on that cross would, would satisfy the judgment of God, Jesus. And only Jesus could do this because he is God in the flesh. Jesus taking the eternity's worth of punishment on himself in the place of sinners so that anyone who would trust in him would find rescue and salvation and hope and life and that they would know the love of God that surpasses all understanding. Do you know this God? This God who would actually love human beings and then in love would send love in the flesh. And that love is revealed as suffering for your eternal welfare. Do you know him? Has your heart been melted and moved by Jesus and who he is? He's the serpent crusher. God had to keep his promise because that's who he is. He loves, he makes the promise, and because he loves, he keeps the promise and fulfills the promise and continues to shine forth his love. Love came because love gave and love conquers. Behold the love of God. This is what the Old Testament was constantly pointing to. We need this king. We need one who is perfect. But we shouldn't stop here. We can define love also, I think, as maybe warm, fuzzy feelings. You know, mm, I just love you, you know. And then, you know, five minutes later, get in an argument with the person, right? Like, mm, how's that love going, right? Love does affect our feelings, but it's so much more. You can't just keep love inside if you have it. If you were here for the candlelight service, at the end of the service, we drew from the candle representing Jesus. And then what? Did, did those four girls just stand up here? No. They shared the light, right? Because if you know Jesus, you go and you share the light with others. And then those others experience the light and they share it with others. Love, if you really know the love of Jesus, you have to, you have to talk about him. And I'm not saying you have to. Like, you have to. Because he's Jesus. 
because he's God come in the flesh. There's just two ramifications, two applications that I want us to gather from this reality of love. God's love sustained his people and pointed forward to love in the flesh who grants people God's love to share with the world for all eternity future. Who is referring to Jesus? Jesus grants people God's love to share with the world for all eternity future. So how does that affect us? We see God's love compels our own. God's love compels our own love for now and for eternity. So a passage of scripture that emphasizes that would be 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us in that way, we also ought to love one another. John is simply reiterating what I've just stated. The love of God was made manifest amongst us It was on display through Jesus, and Jesus satisfied this propitiation. Jesus satisfied the justice of God on the cross. And then John says God's love is further on display because God God didn't love us because we loved him. Remember that. Just remember that over and over and over again. Because I I think too many of us get caught up in the, oh, I did this thing wrong, now God doesn't love me. I mean, we might not say it that way, but we, that's what we believe. Anybody else have that experience? I want to see hands. Yeah? Did God love you because you loved him first? No. And so he will never love you because you loved him first. Ever. He Loved first, loves most, loves best. His steadfast love endures forever. And so then, John says, since God has loved us in this way, if God so loved us, then what? We ought also to love one another. Like, We are set free to love other people like God loves us. Now that's radical, right? Because it's not just, if you love me, then I'm going to love you. Whoa, no. God loved me before I loved him, so I will love you, even if you don't love me. As a matter of fact, not only if you don't love me, if you reject me, I will love you. I will still love you because that's how God has loved me. And and you know what? I will love you even at expense to myself, even if it hurts me, even if you don't understand, even if you want to, even if you want to hurt me, I will still love you because that's how God loved me. God has given us who believe on Christ true, genuine, good fellowship that won't stop here, 
but will continue on in eternity forever in beauty and joy, and it will be even better than Eden ever was because the fellowship in the new heavens and the new earth is a fellowship where we will behold the glory of God all the time visibly, whereas in Eden, it was occasional. If we know the love of Jesus, if we know the love of God, then it will compel our own. And also, if we know God's love, we would see his love casting out fear now and for eternity. If we go on in John's writing, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, there is so much in these verses. But what I want to hone in on is this reality of love casting out fear. And I want you to think, I want you to think about the Apostle John writing these words. He wrote these words to believers. And the Apostle John, do do you know what's going to happen to him in probably the not-too-distant future? Because he follows after Jesus Christ, he's going to be exiled on an island. Tradition says he was actually boiled first, living, and then exiled. That sounds like something to be afraid of, right? Any of you, if you had like, hey, free vacation, you get a boiling and then cast to an island. You're like, oh, yeah. No. No, I, I mean, I know I'm, I'm saying that in a very silly way, but I'm wanting to emphasize something here. In the first century, second century, third century, to say I am a follower of Jesus Christ would be to enter into many worldly fears. You, there were many Christians who died, who died in, in the Colosseum just because they followed after Jesus and people loved watching them be gored to death. Christians through the ages have been persecuted because they love Jesus and they actually love other people and actually care for them and show them the light and love of Jesus to their own demise. And yet for so many, if you, I would highly recommend read biographies of Christians who have suffered and or been martyred because you see something very special. You see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. You see how 
not their perfection, but you see how the love of God has gripped them and constrained them so that they must love. They must love. Now, I say this to get very practical to us. There's a lot of things that we can be afraid of here. I mean, we're, we're not so much now concerned about being taken into a coliseum. But, I mean, I get the, the concerns about where's our world going to be in five years? Where, our world, America. Where's it going to be in five years? Where's it going to be in ten years? My kids go to public school. My goodness, I've seen a, a, a degrading over the last years that they've been in, and I'm, I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know what conversations I'm going to have with, with educators in five years from now or ten years from now. There's concerns, right, that we can have. There's concerns just about our society in general, right? And next year is election season, and everybody's going to hate each other too, so it's going to be great, okay? But I've had, I've listened to Christians and I've had conversations with Christians where it has sounded more like fear grips them than Jesus' love grips them. Do you know what I mean? Oh no, we got to do, and, ah, and, ah, ah. What does John say in this passage? He says, oh, let me get to it, try to find it. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. What does the phrase Son of God mean? He's the ruler. Does Jesus rule over even this fallen world? Yes, yes. Um, he is the Savior of the world. Is Jesus still the Savior of the world? Yes. So in the midst of the chaos of the continuing brokenness of this world, does God promise? By the way, the answer is yes. Okay. Does God promise to work all of these things together for the eternal good of his children? Yes. 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 So, should I be gripped in fear or be gripped by love? Even knowing, and, and actually, I could die. I could die by being gripped by love. But that will show the love of Christ. You see, by the way, that doesn't mean that we don't have concerns. But I'm not gripped by those. I'm gripped by Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh to make many people sons and daughters of God for all eternity. Perfect love casts out fear. So, I think we can see in the scriptures the reality of God's sustaining love, pointing to love in the flesh, to compel us to love others so that others might believe on Christ. And there might be great rejoicing when we see God face to face. You have God's love, Christian. And now, 
Just like God's love sustained Israel in the Old Testament, God's love continues to sustain us until Jesus comes again. And we can look ahead with confidence knowing that the Spirit will perfect God's love in us until the day that love comes again in all of his glory. Better than Eden. Then we will perfectly live in love for eternity future. Truly God's love sustained his people pointed forward to love coming in the flesh who grants people God's love to be shared to the world for all eternity future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are good, you are great, and you are kind. You are not only the God of love, but you say you are love. And so we thank you and I pray that we all would be able to praise you. And no matter what our circumstances are today, I imagine some feeling immense pain, some feeling great encouragement. I pray that you would burrow the realities that your steadfast love endures forever into our hearts and our minds so that we would believe and know your goodness, and your victory. Love was sent, love came, and love conquered. And it's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the commands of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.